Hey guys, my name is Crystal Kenny, and I'm in love with creating. All things artistic and imagination involved. I'm an American girl who chased her creative dreams all the way to Paris, France, making a living using photography. This podcast takes you inside the stories of all the artsy folks I've met along the way and gives you that extra push to discover your creative gifts. The desire to create is deeply inside each and every one of us, and I give you the tools and inspiration to find a new way of living a more creative life. This is La Vie Creative, the podcast. Claudine Hemingway is a descendant of famed writer Ernest Hemingway. We bumped into each other at a party and decided to team up and dive deep into French history, but with a twist, by bringing a spotlight to those lesser-known creatives in France. This is History with a Hemingway. Welcome back to Paris History Avec a Hemingway. Today we are talking about Dewana Barnes, who I have no idea who she is. I didn't even look her up before our chat. So I'm going to be learning along with you today. And I'm already obsessed with her name. I'm learning how to say it, just like my good friend Bert. And uh, I'll let Claudine take it from here. Duana Barnes, you probably have heard of her. You just, uh, but you know, with a name like that, you would maybe remember, but I think I would probably have heard about her because she was in and out a lot of uh, out of the expat circles of the of the 20s. Um, But Duana Barnes um, was born on June 12th, 1892 in New York. And her father's name was Wald Barnes, um, which is, you know, another interesting name. Um, He was a hopeful composer and artist and musician. And we should say um, hopeful because he wasn't very great at it. His um his mother definitely uh you know I think was very motherly and nice and told him how wonderful and amazing he was, but he really wasn't that very big of a talent. Um, nice moms. Yeah, he uh his mother his mother's name was Zadell. I so, love these names. Yes, lots of interesting names with this one. Um she was a literary salon hostess. She was big into the suffragette movement and she was a writer on her own too. So she really, you know, would would have loved to have her son follow in his in her path as an artist. Um he did uh you know, he did try his hand at all every artistic thing that there was um and kind of just eked by a little bit. Um, but that's not the he's a that's not the most interesting thing about him. It's getting it's we're gonna get weird here in a little bit. <laughs> His uh, her mother Elizabeth Chappelle um, married Wald in 1889. Um, he Wald was actually a big believer in polygamy. Ah, now we're getting weird. Now we're getting weird. Now it's getting exciting. Um, <laughs> and so they were married in 1889. In 1897, he married. He uh, moved in a woman named Frances Franny. Fanny Clark. And so now, you know, it's just kind of like all those, I don't even remember what that, I never even watched that TV show, but it was the guy and he had like four, you know, uh, what was it? Oh, Big Love on HBO. I, think. Oh, yeah, I never watched that either, but same idea. Yeah, I think I watched a few. It was very interesting. It was very weird. I was like, I mean, <laughs> one mother is enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> so much work. Yeah. So um, Duana was just five years old at the time when Fanny came into the picture. Her parents had five children between the two of them, and each of them had very exotic names, as you're going to guess. So there was Thern, Zandon, Saxon, Shanger, and Duana. Sounds like they're from another planet. Yeah, they are. I mean, it's very, it's very interesting. I mean, everything about the, the family is a little different. Mars. Um, 
They were raised in a log cabin. She grew up in a log cabin in Storm King Mountain. And uh, Fanny um, was also, of course, there. Fanny and her father would also have three children. I feel like this is very Unabomber in a way. Yeah, it's very, yeah, totally. Totally could picture that. Um, her father didn't really believe in like anything normal, if, as you could guess. And he didn't really believe in normal schooling. And he um, he thought that, you know, he knew better. And he could educate his children much better than any school did. So he kept all the children home and was basically their teacher. Um, she uh, she would go on later in her life and say that she had never actually gone to a formal school as a child. But there has been other things um, come down through the years. It says that she did actually attend school for about a year or so. Mm. But Walden Zadell taught um, the kids music and writing and art. And so they were really big into, you know, all the artistic stuff. So they wanted to pass that on to all of the children, too. At 18 years old, um, she was forced to marry Fanny's brother. So the chart out here. So this is her what would we call her? The second mother, her polygamous mother. Oh, wow. His name was Percy Faulkner. He was 52 years old and her whole family backed up the union. She was 18 marrying a 52 year old uncle. Yeah. (laughs) Luckily the marriage only lasted two months. So it was forced and then it didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, big surprise, right? So before that, as a teenager, she was just 16 years old. She was raped. And there's different conflicting stories um, in the history of her life that says it was either her father or it was a neighbor, but it was completely um, consensual with her father. Mm, So even though her dad sounds like a total creep. Yeah, he's a total creep. So, you know, she marries Percy. And two months later, she leaves. In 1912, her mother, her mother, I think, just figured out at this point she just had enough. So she divorced her father and took the children and they went to New York. Um, he, right after that, of course, um, married Fanny. Mm, makes sense. I mean, yeah. his first wife left. Why not take another? I mean, it's good. You have backup there. She's just ready yeah. to go. <laughs> <laughs> It'll work out. We're good. Yeah. Uh, but the same year, Duana disenrolled to study at the Pratt Institute, and she was there for a year. And then after that, she um, joined the Art Student League in New York in 1913. Um, she had very little money coming in, um, and so she was forced to drop all of that to uh, help support her family and her mother. Um, she did take a job writing for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Which, you know, they don't have names like that for papers anymore. I mean, they don't have papers anymore, but I mean, the yeah. Eagle. Um, but she was never shy. She walked in there to get the job one day and she said, I could draw and I could write and you'd be a fool not to hire me. Oh, that's very bold for a woman of the 19, early 1900s. Yeah. And she and they hired her. So she became a very popular reporter. Um, she was writing uh, theater reviews and featured stories and interviews. But she also illustrated all of them. So she was, you know, she was actually a really good, uh, really great artist as well. And so she'd illustrate all these. I'll put some of the pictures of them um, on my website um, for the show notes for this. Uh, But they're they're actually really interesting. Uh, But she never took any of it too seriously. She looked every at everything kind of as a hobby, and it was just kind of something she could do at the time. So and she just didn't really, she wasn't really buying into anything. Um, But then she ended up uh, being asked to interview James Joyce. So she um, interviewed James Joyce in New York 
And later she would see him, of course, in Paris, because all of our stories have to go to Paris. Um, but she also interviewed a gorilla. <laughs> a gorilla? <laughs> a gorilla named Dinah at the Bronx, Bronx Zoo. And that article was like the big hit of uh, that she had under her name for quite some How time. How did that interview go? <laughs> I'm not really sure. I mean, you see the, you know, you see those movies of the dinosaurs that could paint and they could do yeah. other things. <laughs> I guess the gorilla was painting her a story. Yeah, I just don't, I don't think they're big talkers. Yeah, me either. A lot of uh, noises, but not Yeah, so I think there's a lot of noises. Hmm. Um, but so she decided to uh, use her voice and her, um, and her platform at the time to bring, um, to bring to light things um, that were happening and what she thought and believed, um, you know, how women should be treated. And especially because of how she, you know, grew up. She definitely had her uh, very strong thinking that was very against what her family thought. So she once attended a boxing match and she sat ringside and it, a place that women did not do, especially a woman on her own, you know, without being a chaperone by a man. And mm. in her article, she asked, um, what do what do women want at a fight? She thought the entire scene of a fight in, in a in a boxing ring could basically describe everything that a woman would want. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder what she meant by that. Yeah, between the cultural history and the representation of women at the time, um, you know, you have this, you know, does she, is she the fighter? You know, it's probably, is she the fighter? Or is she the other one that's getting knocked out? And how is she, is she getting up? Is she, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Nice metaphors. Um, yeah. So in 1915, she found a community in Greenwich Village, New York, um, that was with a lot of other artists and writers. And for a time being, she really liked that. She collaborated illustrating books for many of the authors. She did a lot of playbills as well. She began to write short stories and books, um, basically all relying on her personal experience in her childhood, which, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly were all brought to light on the pages. And was it popular? People liked it? Um, it wasn't. I mean, at that point, not, you know, it wasn't really widely distributed. Um, mm. But uh, it was also very, had a, a lot of very graphic uh, look at uh, different views of on sex as well. I don't think the public was ready for that in the early 1900s. No, especially not from a woman. <laughs> the pen name, like Colette. Yeah. Exactly. But in 1921, um, McCall sent her to Paris. And she quickly, uh, she arrived there and she quickly mingled with the expats of Saint-Germain. 1921 is also, of course, when uh, in December, when Hemingway got there. So, you know, this is when they were all arriving over there into Paris and especially over there in Saint-Germain. Um, when uh, she, just like Hemingway, she arrived with a lot of letters of introduction to be taken, um, taken around to, you know, so she could meet up with these different people and, you know, hotels to stay at. And, uh, she ended up seeing James Joyce again and she sat down with him and she interviewed him as again. And, but she also just really, she was really inspired by his style of uh, the way he wrote. And so she really kind of gleaned onto that and used that as her, um, as her own style. Um, her first semi-autobiographical novel was called Writer. This style was very much like Joyce, which means it was a little hard to read. 
And uh, it was a big cr- critical success, but but nobody else wanted to read it. Like the critics <laughs> liked it, but nobody else really liked it. Um, it sold the the very first printing of it sold um, pretty well, and then after that, it just literally just fell off the face of the earth. Because people are like passing the word around, like this is hard to read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, James <laughs> Joyce is. I mean, I haven't read really any of the stuff, but James Joyce is pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it even was like on the, you know, it made it to the top of the New York times. Um, but when the second edition was released, you know, it it just, the bubble had burst and nobody wanted it. She, um, was given a very large advance, um, with the book. And so it allowed her to purchase an apartment in Paris on the Rue Saint-Romain, which is just over in the seventh. Um, it just close to, uh, close to Saint-Germain. Um, and then at that time, she had met a woman in Paris named Thelma Wood, and she was also an expat. She came from Kansas, and she was hoping to be a sculpture sculptor. And she came uh, to Paris and met uh, met Duana, and the two of them um, began having an affair. And she moved in with her. Um, she mingled a lot with the expats at the time, and including Natalie Barney, who is another lady we're going to talk about in another episode, uh, but they had a short affair too. So there was, at this time, there was this real big, uh, big community of lesbians that were living in Paris. You know, at the time, it wasn't completely okay, of course, in Paris, but it was, it definitely was not okay in the, in the U.S. So uh, they all came to Paris and they were quite, you know, the bells of the ball and they would have salons and they'd have all of these parties, which, you know, when we get to, uh, when we talk about Natalie, she was quite the, she was quite the hostess. So they all kind of mixed and mingled together. Um, Natalie and uh, Donna became, they stayed very close, even though their, their relationship um, would, uh, was, had a lot of ups and downs, even on the, just a uh, friendship wise, but <laughs> Th- Thelma's relationship with Donna turned out pretty bad. Thelma was drinking a lot. Um, she was uh, she was sleeping around a lot as well. And when it finally became too much, Duana just basically, you know, ended it. And they broke it off, and she fell into a pretty deep depression and began drinking a lot. Mm. So in those first years, um, she wrote um, what was called the Lady Ladies Almanac, and it was stories of the lesbian life in Paris. Oh, that sounds like a fun read. <laughs> but it wasn't a big seller. <laughs> she retitled it late, later, A Lady of Fashion. She had it um, reprinted and she physically would go and walk the streets of Paris selling her book. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> was it French? Yeah, there was, I mean, that's a big difference going from the lesbian life of Paris to calling it A Lady of Fashion. I mean, I think I could, I could just picture these, you know, these ladies in the 16th getting this book and be like, Oh, a lady of fashion. And then, Whoa. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> I didn't know what kind of fashion that was. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, but it was also banned in the U S so she couldn't even ship it back to the U S and you know, it was written, it was written in English. So she couldn't send it back to the U S it had to be smuggled in there. Of course, just like Joyce and Ulysses. Um, mm-hmm. But it was, uh, she also wrote at the same time another book, and it was based on the relationship with Thelma. Um, She wrote it from 1932 to 1933 when she left Paris for London. Um, She had to get out of Paris. She was just drinking all of the time. Um, She was friends with Peggy Guggenheim. And Peggy 
yeah, Peggy Guggenheim basically kind of helped her out. She paid her paid to take her to London um, to set her up in London. Um, and at that time, it was, you know, she was fine for a little bit. She was writing all the time. She started writing Nightwood, um, which uh, she had actually started in Paris. And she wrote it um, sitting at the Café de la Marie, which is right across from Saint-Sulpice, which is a, a lot of people love that little café. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Hemingway would sit there and James Joyce, all of these different writers at the time. Um, but Nightwood was a love story of Robin and Nova, and it was based on Duana and Thelma and their very twisted, dramatic relationship. <laughs> Yes. So in London, um, you know, she she really started drinking a lot. Um, and Peggy Guggenheim was uh, kind of just got tired of it, couldn't take it anymore and had her taken um, to an asylum. Oh, which no. is, you know, now we call it rehab. When you call it an asylum, it sounds like even scarier. Yeah, <laughs> like they're taking her away forever. Yeah. So that was in 1939. She tried to kill herself right before that. And then that's when Peggy was like, no, you need to go get help. Um, when she still just fought everything and she was very difficult to deal with. She was very uh, headstrong. Peggy got so tired of it. She just put her on a ship and sent her back to New York. She sent her back to New York. Yeah, just like go back to New York. And of course, she goes back to New York and she moves in with her mother into a very small apartment, which was just a complete nightmare. Um, her, you know, especially, I mean, how could you do that after you're living this life in Paris and, you know, at all the parties and everything? And now you're going back to live with your mom in a teeny tiny apartment. Sounds like my <laughs> worst nightmare. Also, she owned an apartment in Paris. Like she couldn't get her crap together. Yeah, no, she couldn't get her stuff together. So, um, but her mother had become very uh, religious and she basically would spend like 20 hours a day doing nothing but talking to Duana about religion. Oh, that sounds like not fun. <laughs> and yeah, not fun. With your mother. She's writing books about, you know, the lady's life in Paris. You know, <laughs> <here's the> <laughs> ladies of fashion, Claudia. <laughs> I know. Now Bob is like, well, Adam and Eve. <laughs> <laughs> That's all illegal. No lesbian stuff here. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So she was still really depressed and she was still drinking a lot. So the, her family actually ended up, again, with the help of Peggy Guggenheim, sending her to a um, asylum again in the spring of 1940. Um, while she was there, um, it was probably a really a dumb idea for her family to do that because while she was there, she decided to write a play about the about her family and growing up. And mm. this was no holds bar. So she uh, once her mother and a family found out um, about this and started reading some of it, it was like a full on war. They uh, basically shunned her and pushed her away, didn't want to have anything to deal with her. Um, and so that, uh, you know, after everything that happened in Paris, you know, they were incredibly embarrassed, um, by her behavior in Paris and what she had been writing because it was all under her name. Um, but I mean, come on, their family, it's not like, I mean, they, they were polygamous and <laughs> it's not like her family is like a shining example of society at that time. Exactly. Exactly. Living in their log cabin, marrying off uncles and creepy stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, what else would they expect? Um, but she ended up uh, with the help of friends and again with Peggy Guggenheim. Um, she ended up getting enough money together that she got an apartment in Greenwich um, at Five Patchen Place. And so she stayed there actually for the whole rest of her life. 
Because you never went back to Perry. Never went back to Perry. Um, at the same time, um, she her writing was really slowing down. Um, Peggy Guggenheim would try to, you know, get her involved in any of the exhibits she was doing. She tried to get Duana, you know, to help with, um, you know, writing about them and things. And she just, you know, she was drinking so much that she just really had, you know, she didn't want to do anything. She she also uh, became a recluse and never wanted to even leave her apartment. So sad. Yeah. By the mid 1950s, um, she realized how how badly and this is pretty amazing to just do this on your own, especially after all the times in rehab that she decided her drinking basically left her completely trapped. And so she couldn't, you know, write or sketch or do anything. And she just one day stopped drinking. So she just went cold turkey on her alcoholism. Yeah, she just went cold turkey. Um, But so she began to pick up uh, the play that she wrote about the family. Um, The family was probably like, just send her some more scotch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Keep her quiet. Keep her drunk. Yeah. Keep her drunk. We don't want her. We don't want to hear anything. Um, But so she decided to pick up the play again. It was called Antiphon. And she wrote it. You know, it was all about her family and all of those uh, horrible years when she was growing up. Um, she said that she wrote it. She was so angry when she wrote it. She said she wrote it through clenched teeth. Oh, wow. I mean, that's one therapy way to get rid of your Get it out. Get it out, sister. Um, but her health began to fail and she had really bad arthritis, um, that made it very hard to write, of course. And so she, uh, she's tried writing with a, you know, with a typewriter to, you know, very slowly. Um, but in Antifan, she danced around the whole relationship, um, with Augustin, who was the older widow, um, and her daughter. So it's kind of, you know, um, based on the, her mother and her, um, Mm -hmm. the daughter's name was Miranda. Um, and it, it, it ends with the mother killing the daughter. Mm. With a large bell. Wow. <laughs> and when I read that, for me, the historian that I am, I'm envisioning the bell of like Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that must have been a very large bell. <laughs> I know, like most people in your house, maybe you have a little bell, you know, like maybe if you're sick, you ring the bell and mom brings you more, you know, water. Whatever. Yeah. Who has a bell that's big enough to kill somebody? These are questions. <laughs> I mean, did she beat her to death with the tiny bell? Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. But this was, uh, you know, it was all in the play. Of course, I'm sure her mother didn't like that. But in her final years, she became, uh, she very reluctantly decided to work with a publisher um, that this publisher, this woman just kept constantly contacting Duana and trying to, you know, cause she had all of these stories and short stories that she wrote that had never been published. And, you know, they, they really wanted to work with her and Duana was just like, no, you know, just get away. She didn't want to see anybody. She stayed in her apartment. Um, sometimes people would come in, uh, from the street into the court from the courtyard, yell up at her window and she would be just yell at them and tell them to go away. So she was a complete hermit, total hermit. I mean, you, I mean, I think we could all relate to that a little bit now. But she she didn't like, she hated publishers. She called them printers. She (laughs) she didn't like, you know, I mean, she didn't like anybody having anything to do with anything that she did. You know, she wanted to make all of her own decisions. So um, she finally decided to give in and she worked with this one publisher and they ended up uh, publishing a collection of her uh, short stories um, just right before she died. 
Well, lucky that publisher. I know there was, they were very, uh, they were very, you know, they weren't going to back down. I think that maybe that was it. Maybe it's because they were, she was just as uh, eager as Duana and how Duana acted. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say she killed her with the bell. Yeah, she killed her with the bell. Bring um, it at her. But Duana ended up dying. She was at 90 years old. She lived a long time for an alcoholic. Yeah, she died in 1982 in New York, um, just six days after her birthday, um, alone in her apartment. Well, that sounds like the life of a recluse. Yeah, yeah. Very sad. Um, her Paris years, of course, were filled with parties and drama, uh, but she made lasting friends um, through that whole time that she, you know, still, she did still, you know, keep up with in letters, even though she never was able to get back to Paris. Um, but, you know, you could, uh, anytime you're reading anything about that, that period in Paris and the expats, you're always going to come across, her name's always going to come up. She was in, uh, it was in the scene in uh, Midnight in Paris when Gil goes the first night and they go to a party and then they, you don't see her, but they, he was dancing and they said, oh, that was Joanna Barnes. And he said, oh, no wonder she wanted to lead. Ah. <laughs> but you don't actually see the actress that's, you know, portraying her. Oh, now I know who that was. Yeah, I had no now you know who that you is. Kept in contact with Louise, her lesbian dramatic lover. <laughs> she the did drama. it yeah yeah heartbreak heartbreak do yeah. we know what happened to louise no no i mean she just uh or thelma she ended up just uh she ended up dying much sooner because she was pretty bad into the bad into drinking and sleeping around mm, yeah well paris will do that to you it will do that but she you know back then she hung out with all those people when she'd go to uh gertrude stein's salon uh, because she was a woman she was forced into the kitchen um with alice b toklas um uh, mm-hmm. because all the men hung out you know all the men hung out with gertrude um where they were you know talking about art and writing and everything and the women were forced into the kitchen with alice alice b toklas that's so funny. I love how Gertrude was the dude. She's like, stay in the kitchen, ladies. Yeah, but they, but Alice and Duana ended up having a, a very long friendship and kept in touch until, uh, you know, their final days. Surprised she never made it back to Paris. I wonder what happened to her apartment. I don't know. I would love to like, yeah, I mean, it's so cool that she made enough money just from writing. She could buy an apartment in Paris with that yeah. advantage. Like yeah. that would never happen today. <laughs> I know. I just always, I mean, when we do our Sunday walks, I always just think like, do the people know that are living there now who lived, you know, it could yeah. be, this is where Man Ray lived or this is where, you know, Modigliani, like do people know that they're living in the same, you know, bedroom that Modigliani lived in? You know, it was just, they so probably wild. don't know or care. <laughs> yeah. Like we don't care. Yeah. We just need to pay these high rents and go to work. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you guys for listening to another great episode with Claudine. And don't forget to join us every Sunday for our live virtual walks around Paris, where Claudine gives us history over Zoom as we walk the streets of Paris with you. And we do that every Sunday. So tune in to learn more about that. And Claudine, we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Paris History Avec A. Hemingway. If you want to find out some more, you could always find me on my Instagram page, Claudine Bleu Blanc Rouge, and that's B-L-E-U, as in the French way to spell it. And each day I post a daily history lesson about a person or a place or something in Paris, or it's 
lots of fun facts. And then also at ClaudineHemingway.com where you can also sign up for my newsletter there.